Welcome to episode 35 of the Recharge Podcast. As we push into the later stages of winter, many people find themselves feeling a little bit depressed and anxious, and uh, spring is uh, certainly delaying its appearance in many parts of the country. I'm bringing on a guest, Linda Esposito, an expert in the mental health realm. I recorded this interview a while back, but I've edited it and packaged it up, and I think it's quite fitting, and I want to share that with you today. I'm, as always, interested in your thoughts, and if you find value here, uh, please uh, subscribe and uh, share this content, and I hope you have a fantastic week. Let's jump straight into this. We have a very exciting guest on today, Linda Esposito. She's not only a psychotherapist, but she's a sort of a master at dealing with anxiety in adults and in teenagers alike. So welcome aboard, Linda. Thank you, Michelle. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks. So I'm so happy to have you here with us today. And one of the questions I always like to get into is sort of the backstory on uh, where, the, where my guests and experts come from. And so if you wouldn't mind just sharing a little bit about your story and your journey of how you got uh, from your previous life to your current uh, psychotherapy profession. Are you wanting me to go back to my dysfunctional childhood? <laughs> <laughs> wherever, you want to, wherever you want to take us to would be great. Well, I'll just take you to the present day. Um, so, yes, I'm a psychotherapist, and I started a blog a little over four years ago, and the intention was to help my psychotherapy clients, which, as you mentioned, are you know anxious adults, or I also work with teenagers and their families, and I thought this could be a great adjunct resource because, of course, the 50-minute hour just goes by so quickly, and I found out that my clients really weren't jiving with it. And so it also felt kind of weird for me because, you know, here we have this really intimate meeting once a week, and then I'm referring them to this website, which was just a different type of uh, a style of writing, and it was a lot more casual. And then it kind of felt a little bit self-indulgent and narcissistic. So I thought, okay, I'm not going to have that, you know, be part of a resource. And so then it just evolved. I was always bothered by the fact that I believe at the time, and this is going back four years, I think just in the US alone, Google averaged about 500,000 search queries for generalized anxiety every month. Wow, interesting. And I thought, wow, that's a lot of people, anxious people searching for help online. So the present day is that I was able to use my experiences, especially a lot of the mistakes, leverage some of the resources and expand my audience. And so now I am a blogger for Huffington Post and Psychology Today, where I write about not only mental health, but also education and some other issues as well. So I'm still kind of trying to find exactly um, the direction, but now I'm really focused on the fact that at least since 2010, there there's at least 46 million prescriptions written for Xanax every year just in the U.S. And as a practitioner, I see a lot of people who either don't want to try Xanax because they're afraid, they feel like they're not at that stage, or they're really afraid that they're going to become addicted. Sure. Um, and so it's really about trying to have a voice and build a community out there where we destigmatize mental health mm -hmm. and really focus on 
if you want to improve your mental health, it's like any endeavor in life. I mean, if you want to run a marathon, you're not going to go to the running store, buy some really great shoes and sign up for a marathon. <laughs> right. I mean, there's a lot of different, you know, processes. It's literally a day, day in and day out pursuit. So my new project is going to be called Wired for Happy. And I'm hoping that's going to come out within the next couple of months. And so I changed my title from my previous um, endeavor because I wanted to, again, tackle a lot of the mental health issues. But if some people were, I guess, reluctant to come to a site that was written by a therapist or had therapy in the URL or dealt specifically with anxiety, it might be a little anxiety provoking for them. So that's basically where I'm at now. Okay. So I imagine your new project is going to dive into more issues than just anxiety by itself. Right. This is more focused on how do we achieve life satisfaction? Because I think, you know, my clients, the, the two things that they've consistently, when they come to therapy, when I say, you know, what are your goals? And becoming happier and becoming calmer usually make the top two. And I'd say 95% of the cases. So this is more about life satisfaction because I think sometimes happy can also be seen as just maybe not so much a buzzword, but I think that there's been so much focus on being happy that you can feel stigmatized if you're not happy. Right. I'm basically focusing on how do we achieve life satisfaction. Perfect. I love it. I saw in your bio that at the LCSW, the Licensed Clinical Social Worker, is that right? Yes. Okay. How long did you do that? Well, generally speaking, when you get out of your master's program, you have to accrue a certain number of hours and generally takes about two and a half to three years to accrue your licensure hours. And then after that, you have to take the state board. So there's an oral, I'm sorry, there's no longer an oral test, but there's two different modalities. One would be the written, which was a four hour multiple choice exam. And then the other is the clinical vignette. So once you pass those, then you're able to call yourself a licensed clinical social worker because you're recognized. Well, in the, in the example of California, we're called licensed clinical social workers. Depending on where you practice, your state licensing board might call you something different like licensed intervention counselor or licensed counselor, et cetera. Okay. That's interesting. I have several friends, uh, in, in my state and surrounding states that are, are social workers, but they work more in terms of, uh, you know, finding placement for people from hospital settings, or, you know, we were talking about amputation and, and the rehabilitation issues, finding um, resources for those people, um, in a hospital or clinic setting is what I've been familiar with the term before. Right. And I think that that's a good distinction. A lot of times we, when we think of social work, we think of, more case management, um, you know, like you said, you know, helping people. It could be, you know, if you're working in a hospital, you're working with families trying to get them hooked up with resources. Um, and then, of course, a lot of, at least out here in California, a lot of times when people hear social work, one of the first things they say is, oh, so you're one of those people that takes kids away from their homes. Right? Oh, jeez. <laughs> wow. Like, oh. That's part of the job. I am a mandated child abuse reporter, but we do a lot more. So, yeah, I think that uh, typically people associate marriage and family therapists more as being psychotherapists as opposed to the social workers. Okay, sure. I was curious. I saw a phrase on, on one of your pages about anxious adults raise anxious children. Uh, it certainly seems relevant in today's you know crazy, hectic-paced world. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. 
I think a lot of anxiety and studies will corroborate this show that some people are just more anxiety sensitive. They're just wired from the beginning. So you can thank your mom and dad for that or one of them, but also there is the environment that we grow up in. So chances are that if you do come from anxious adults, anxious parents who raised you, you're going to become anxious yourself because children are like sponges. And so they absorb the environment that they're around. And it's really, really difficult to undo that because you're really getting a double whammy there. Number one, you have the genetic predisposition to be more anxiety sensitive. And two, the way you see your parents dealing with their own anxiety issues, and a lot of times not the most healthy of ways of dealing, that's going to affect you as well. And overall, I think what is so important, because obviously we can't change our DNA, we don't choose our parents, is to really try to integrate the feeling or not, not so much the feeling, I'm sorry, that wasn't the correct um, phrase, but to integrate the mentality that the world is basically a safe place where most people possess good will. And it sounds very generalized, but it's really, really important because how we interact with other people daily, the choices that we make in our lives, the relationships that we have to our children, to our spouses, our partners, to everybody is a direct result of the trust that you have in other people. And so there's a very different way. Someone who was raised to question others' motives or to always be fearful Mm -hmm. is going to have a very different way of reacting to someone versus the person who was raised in a more calm environment and was taught from an early on age that the world is basically a great place. Most things do fall into place if you are a good person, if you're kind, if you're a lawful person. And most people out there are inherently goodwill people. And a lot of times in practice, I I have to work really, really hard on my adult clients to undo that because I will have clients come in and they'll say, you know, part of my problem is I don't trust anybody. Sure. I don't trust my um, office workers. I don't trust my employees. I'm always thinking that someone's going to screw me over. I don't trust my brother-in-law. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm like, well, why the hell trust me? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, well, what do you mean like that? It's really, really fascinating because then when I look back at some of these clients – and the way that they approach therapy, I mean, some, some of them did not. They, they literally lumped me into the you know, category of I don't trust anybody, and I was a part of that. So on the one hand, you say, well, then why are they coming to therapy um, if they don't trust you? And sometimes it's something that is not even consciously at your disposal because it's just been so um, ingrained in you. So basically, if you can trust the world as a safe place, you will trust that when the bad things do happen, that there are coping skills at your ready, and also the belief that there's a lot more good in this world than there is bad. Sure. It sounds like, you know, fear and uh, anxiety are very closely related as a sort of a, a nidus uh, and generating a kind of an anxious personality. 
Absolutely. So what would you say to a parent? I mean, I'm sure you deal with parents who say, oh, it seems like my child is, is becoming, you know, anxious. You know, how, how do you, how do you approach that or any, any tips or things to uh, kind of get, get them back on track? Well, I was taught that when you're working with children, that every issue with a child is actually an issue with the parent. So, and this isn't to blame the parents, but this is just to put a frame on it. Again, because a child is kind of like an innocent bystander. If you're 10 years old, I mean, there's not, you don't have a lot of control over your life and you certainly don't have control over what your parents or caretakers do and how they manage their stress or how they don't manage their stress. So usually you work with the family very, very closely. And I'm really, really dead set on screening my clients before they come to me. Because if I have a parent or parents who are not willing to be part of the treatment, then I don't take them on. And the reason is because if let's say that there is an issue where the child has become what we call school phobic or a school refusal, they're, they're not wanting to come to class or when they do come to, to school, they just cry and cry and cry. Mm-hmm. That is usually because the one parent or both parents has separation issues. And so they have projected that onto their child. And this isn't something that people do because they're bad or because they have ill will towards their child. They just haven't handled their own anxiety around separation. Or for example, the parent might not trust the school Mm -hmm. and might not trust that the teachers or the yard staff are going to protect her child from the playground bullies or whatnot. She is through her behaviors and the things that she says is projecting that onto the child. So then the child takes that on and then they're afraid. And so that's why I really do work really, really closely with parents because again, any kind of issue with children is usually an issue with the parent. It's not always a linear causal. For example, if I have a, an older uh, child, so for example, a teenager, and let's say that the presenting problem for coming to therapy is because they've been smoking pot or they've been drinking. And so you'll, what you'll find is that with parents, a lot of times there was not a very, very firm rule about using substances. For example, when you are 21 years old and if you choose to drink, well, that's on you. Um, but for as long as you live under my roof, for as long as you're under the age of 21, you will not have alcohol in my house. If I catch you with alcohol at a party or I hear this or whatnot, there will be consequences. I love you enough to have you hate me for a while. So sometimes with parents, what I'm really trying to, I guess, uncover, if you will, is their their relation to using substances. And what you find a lot, again, this is very, very unconscious, is that maybe for those parents who do not have those firm rules about supervising where their children go and if there's going to be alcohol or marijuana, et cetera, is that the the parent feels that life is so unbearably stressful that you really can't get through it without some kind of self-medication. And they almost don't blame their child. They almost feel like their child is 
justified in using substances. So what this looks like behaviorally is that parent who's not going to check, who's not going to do a surprise drive to the party or really make an effort to sit down and talk with the parents if there has been an issue, not going to go to school and sit in class if the kid is ditching fifth period because he's getting high, you know, things like that. Interesting. I guess I never made that connection with the, uh, you know, the, the parent and the child behavior in, in those terms. Uh, certainly see people with a lot of substance issues in the emergency department where I work, but, uh, you know, it seems uh, a little bit more clear that obviously the family dynamic plays a huge part in that. Absolutely. So you talked earlier about the 46 million uh, Xanax prescriptions. I think it's probably even higher than that. But in, in your practice, how do you approach the issue of somebody who, um, you know, is, is refusing to maybe see that, that it is a, a substance and that maybe there's another way besides uh, medicating the pain or, or, or dulling the pain with a substance? How do you approach those people? That's a wonderful question. And because I... I'm a sole practitioner, so I'm not part of a clinic. I'm not part of a large practice. For example, we don't have a psychiatrist you know, next door or whatnot or someone else that, that I can refer to if I need some kind of um, auxiliary support. I'm very, very strict about who I take on. So if someone is to call me and they will say I'm trying to get off of Xanax or I'm addicted, I will not take on this client. Mm-hmm. Again, because I'm a sole practitioner and there's really – it becomes, well, you know this as a, as a physician, depending on where you are in your recovery, it can be something where you need to go to detox before you even go right. to therapy. So interestingly enough with my clients, sometimes I have to convince them to get a medical evaluation. Interesting. Because I'll give a typical example. Usually by the time people get to therapy, I mean, they are just, they're not sleeping at night. The racing thoughts are consuming them. Their partner might have threatened divorce or to leave them. So there's usually a pretty significant trigger and a pretty significant pain point that caused them to come to therapy in the first place. And so I do a lot of psychoeducation about the fact that, you know, A, I'm not qualified to discuss the interactions of meds and certain classes of meds. However, um, your psychiatrist is or your primary care physician is. But I do talk about the fact that sometimes if they come to therapy and they are so completely overwhelmed by their anxiety symptoms, the therapy intervention is not going to be very successful because they're just not ready to take it in. Sure. Yeah, I think some people need almost permission to uh, to, to maybe re- rely on a, a medication or, or derive some short-term benefit from something like, say, Xanax, that they almost are looking for somebody to say, you know, you're going through something that's very challenging and this may be something to temporarily help you, that they, they don't sort of remove some of the stigma when they have a health professional such as yourself say, you know, you might want to consider this. Absolutely. I was looking and I saw something about autogenic relaxation. It sounds uh, sounds very cool. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Oh my gosh, I totally can't even think of what that is right now. <laughs> it sounds amazing. <laughs> no, I remember I remember recording it, and um, I'm sure it has a lot to do with biofeedback. And oh my gosh, I feel like such a bad person. Right <laughs> so let me, for the record. And I love the fact this is completely off the cuff, but there was no question sent to me beforehand or honestly, I didn't even know, you know, okay. <laughs> to discuss. But anyways, I, I, if I go back to the 
I guess the um, the bedrock of my brain. I remember doing that recording, and I think it had to do with a lot of relaxation and really looking at slowing down your heart rate, your uh, paying attention to your physical responses, because basically anything with anxiety. I mean, the number one treatment modality is going to be breathing. So this is this is even if you're not, um, you know, even if you have high level anxiety. This, this really does supersede taking medication because for a lot of people, when they feel that sense of panic coming on, actually the fear of a panic attack can trigger the panic attack because it's just so overwhelming. So breathing is always your first line of defense. So the breathing can just be something where I like to keep it simple, the four, four, four. So that's breathing in for a count of four, holding for a count of four, and then exhaling for a count of four. And if you do this three times in succession and you do this throughout the day, what happens is that you train yourself to incorporate breathing as a coping skill. And what you're really trying to do is get someone in touch with their body because with a lot of anxiety, the body is in one place and the head is somewhere different. So you really want to integrate the two. So I believe the autogenic. <laughs> relaxation. And I, I remember people saying, Oh my gosh, thank you. This was really, really nice. Cause I, you know, I, if I make it for my clients in therapy, my brick and mortar, I'll share it on the blog. Um, so now I, I'm thinking, I think that's what I, I think that sounds right. You know, I, I was doing a little bit of research yeah, before the interview and I came across uh, quite a few people talking about how powerful and simple this, this autogenic relaxation was. And I just, I thought I got to figure out what, what this is. It sounds uh, very, very promising. So definitely. Um, obviously, you know, mental health workers and therapists are, are in short supply across the country. And it seems like this trend is exponentially worse over the past years. Do you think there's some solution or alternatives to this issue? I mean, obviously the internet is, is playing a role in how patients are communicating with other healthcare practitioners. Do you think there's a role for that? Absolutely. I mean, I'm not totally sold on for example, online therapy. And that's just because I was trained by an analyst. And so I, I really love to be in the therapy room. But the caveat is this, if people don't have access or if time or travel is an issue, if commuting is an issue, I say whatever works for someone. So I, I love the fact that there is a movement where there's more therapists thinking outside the box because regardless of what age we're in, the Traditional talk therapy model is not for everybody, but everyone deserves to have mental health support. I know there's a lot of cost issues as well. Um, I'm in this, uh, this dilemma myself where I only accept one insurance panel, and I feel really bad having that restriction to my practice, but I think what's happened with the, the managed care and one reason why there is a dearth of mental health professionals is it's not as attractive a profession as you know, other professions that you can generate a better income and a, a better quality of life for you and your family, especially among men. I've definitely seen that with men. But I think that there's definitely ways to get around that. And so again, if you know people are are feel comfortable talking to a computer screen and actually having that intimate relationship with a therapist and are benefiting from the digital therapeutic model, 
that's great. As long as is is there is a licensed person either behind that camera or talking on a telephone, if it's uh, you know a telephone therapy session, etc. As long as there's someone who is licensed. But think of one of the. I apologize. No problem. I think that one of the main issues is we still have such a stigma about mental health. And I think that is just going to take so much public health, you know, campaigning and, you know, people just, you know, writing blogs and making a lot of this mental health, you know, lexicon, just not part of everyday conversation per se, but really just getting out there and saying that, Hey, you know, we all have something. Everybody has issues and everyone deserves to have a better quality of, of mental health life. Answered your question? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was just looking at a few of the bullet points here about, you know, there's hours options in life and, uh, you know, we all need therapy. I, I love that uh, little statement there. Certainly uh, nobody's without issues. I know a lot of people maybe masquerade or pretend that their life's perfect, but uh, uh, you and I both know when you look under the cover, there's there's always things going on that uh, could be optimized or improved to live a, a better quality or happier life or whatever sort of uh, phrase you want to attach to it. Right. I noticed on your website there's several, I guess, uh, resources or tools. Um, can you talk a little bit about about what's what's there on Talk Therapy Biz? Uh, if people go to that site, what they can find? Sure. Well, they shouldn't go much longer. Because <laughs> it's going to be six feet under pretty soon. Okay. Uh, my new domain will be Wired for Happy, and I'm going to have a lot of the same resources. I'm going to have a lot of the what do you call it, the autogenic? <laughs> autogenic relaxation technique. Yeah. Cool. I, reason why I, I'm, that's not ringing but honestly I remember thinking I don't like autogenic it just sounds so clinical sure. okay, but anyways, um, back to the question at hand so so yeah in terms of you know resources that, that I will be carrying over to Wired for Happy I mean I'm a firm believer that you know if you read a blog post or if you read an article you know we don't retain a lot of information so I like to do the multi-modality approach so for example what I one thing I love to do um because we all have different ways of learning. So for example, I'm a visual learner. So if you tell me something, it's not going to be as impactful as if I'm actually, you know, doing it or if I'm looking at, you know, the instructions or the guidelines, et cetera. So I like to do recorded screen casts. So it's like a PowerPoint, but it has a voiceover with it. Mm-hmm. And of course I have a lot of relaxation MP3 files, the audio files for breathing, for positive visualization. I have one for social anxiety and I'm going to have some more too. I just, um, I asked my, my email list. I put out a survey because I wanted some assistance with the direction that I'm going for wired for happy. And so I said, Hey guys, you know, if I get a certain number, I'm going to throw in a gift there. I didn't tell them what the gift was. In fact, I didn't even say there was going to be a gift until I sent it out the second time. So the first, um, the first people I think are maybe a a truer, I guess, um, sample in terms of what their answers were, because that was the majority of the responses I got. But I made a 15 minute, um, MP3 file for calming. It's a calming, um, I'm sorry. It's a calming, relaxation tool, but it is dealing with obsessive thoughts because what I found in the survey, I was able to count 100 of the surveys Mm -hmm. and 
what tends to keep my audience up at night were generalized anxiety, financial worries, feelings of low self-esteem, and then the racing thoughts was very, very pervasive. So based around that, I, I found a wonderful script online. So again, I like to do videos and record screencasts, MP3 files, and lots of, you know, sometimes I'll make posters or I'll make quote unquote a cheat sheet and offer that up to people as well. Okay, very cool. So the, the wiredforhappy.com or .net, uh, when will that go live? Well, you might want to ask Omar Zenholm from Fizzle. Okay. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, probably in September. I, I, I imagine in September. But my, my current domain, which is Talk Therapy Biz, will still be up. At least there'll be like a redirect. Sure. It does find me there. Absolutely. So one last question. Um, if you were going to share just one simple piece of advice to somebody who's just really overwhelmed, maxed out with anxiety and, and just uh, repetitive thoughts during the day, what, what would you tell them to do at the end of the day? It's a wonderful question. I think if it's at the end of the day, let it go, no matter what it was. Um, because I'm a firm believer that, you know, no matter what happened, during the day, you know, there's always options. You can always do things differently the next day. But I think that whatever is bothering someone the most, whether this is a relationship they're in or if they're stuck in a career, I'd say that most likely that pain point is what needs the most attention because we tend to, you know, even if we try to escape or avoid our problems, the things that are on our mind are the things that we do need attention to. So I'd say just take very small steps. So for example, if it's a relationship that you know is not healthy, vow to take steps every single day to either try to repair that relationship or to leave that relationship. So again, this could be just waking up and meditating in the morning for five minutes or doing breathing relaxation exercises because you know that you're dealing with a lot of stress. You know that you're going to be bringing these problems to the forefront of your mind. So it's going to tax your mental energy. I would also, um, you know, other small steps can be to, you know, contact a friend to get some support, you know, maybe go to therapy, eat healthier, do something nice for yourself. But really know that whatever that, that block is, it's not going to go away until you take steps to remedy it. Yeah, I love that. I love the meditation piece. I, I'd like to just to start and stop my day with a, a meditation and just bookmark it with a few minutes in the morning and then maybe a little bit longer in the evening, which can be challenging to fit that in, but definitely makes all the difference. There's a wonderful website, and it's actually better to access it via computer than on a tablet or a mobile phone is called calm.com. And I love it. So if you want to link to it, especially on the computer, it's lovely because you have your computer screen and this woman has a very soothing voice. You can choose. It's a five or 10, I think a 20 and maybe even 30 minute meditations. And it's really lovely. So there's, there's definitely a, an upsell because they want you to buy buy the app. But if you do access it via your computer, I mean, you can get a, a lot of good mileage on that. And there's also some really lovely nature sounds and scenarios that you can choose from too. So my, my clients tend to really like that too. And just like you said, if I don't have the time, well, even five minutes in the morning and five minutes before I go to bed, that's, you know, 
a lot better than doing nothing. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for sharing that link. Well, I want to honor your time and thank you today. And just uh, one last thing, uh, where can people find you? Uh, I assume you're on Twitter and Pinterest and the usual places. Yeah, well, my, my Pinterest um, was hacked. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if you go to for Facebook, it's um, my name, Linda Esposito, LCSW, Anxiety Saboteur. Nice. Is my, my Facebook page. And then my Twitter handle right now is Talk Therapy Biz. Okay. And, um, again, I'll be having wiredforhappy.com hopefully by October, September, October at the latest. Awesome. Thanks so much and have a great day. Thank you, Mitchell. Thank you so much for spending some time with me today. If you found value in this episode and the show, please share a review on iTunes as it really helps the show get discovered. Please share your biggest takeaway. And as always, I want to help you answer the burning questions in your mind. So reach out to me at MitchellMD.com or on social media, wherever you hang out. Make today incredible, and I'll see you on the next episode of the Recharge Podcast.